Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word. Be blessed. Blessings today to everyone in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 15, and it's a continuation of the thought processes in chapter 14 about not putting ourselves first. As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it should always be ingrained in our hearts and in our minds that God comes first, others are next, and we are last. In fact, we don't even exist. As a follower of Christ, we're always thinking about others, and it's not about me. This is what he's going to say in verse 1. Today, Samuel and Alan is with me, and we're going to be going together, the three of us, through this chapter. And we pray that everything we say and everything that we do during this podcast will honor the Lord. So let's start in verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. If you go back to chapter 14, let's look at verse 21. That gives you a little bit of the context. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So when we look at that verse, it's in the context, as we explained in chapter 14, that's very similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And that context is food, uh, meat, or wine that has come indirectly from the temple to the marketplace. And what do we do? Do we eat or not eat? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we understand that to eat this meat is okay if it comes indirectly. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if it comes directly from a person who has said, I have offered this to an idol, we are to reject that. So in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, the stronger brother is the one that understands that it's okay to eat, but the weaker brother is one that has a problem with it and is saying, I cannot eat. And for that person to eat, it would become sin to that individual. So Paul is saying, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I will not eat meat. So that same context is flowing here in chapter 15. Life as a Christian, and what I mean as a Christian or a Messianic, is one that is following the Messiah, following Christ. Our lives is not about us. It's all about the Lord and the body of Christ, and how to minister to the body of Christ to build them up, and how to minister to people outside of the body of Christ. It's never about us. Once it becomes about us, then we're going down the wrong path. So if we look at this first verse, it says, and not just please ourselves. So the thinking processes is this, what is right in the eyes of God? It's not about me, it's about him, and it's about others. If we have that understood within the way that we think, then we're going to have sound judgment. We're going to do the right things to honor the Lord and to minister to others. Verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. 
And I believe this neighbor here is in the context of the body of Christ because it's in the context of edifying, build up, building up the body of Christ. So we want to do what is right, what is pleasing for our neighbor for their good, not my good, but for their good. Remember again, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So as a Christian, we die to ourselves every single day. So I want to do what is pleasing to my neighbor, Samuel, Alan, what is right for them to strengthen them, to edify them, to build them up in their faith. Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. This is coming from Psalm chapter 69, a Psalm of David. And David is crying out the reproaches of those who reproached you, God. All of that fell upon me. So David's focus was upon doing what was right in God's eyes, just like Christ was. His focus was not his will, but let the will of his father be done within his life. So Jesus did not live this life for himself. He lived it for the glory of God, and he lived it for us. He put us first. He put us ahead of his own interest. He did not want to go to the cross, but he did it for the sake of bringing salvation to us. We should have that same mindset set in everything that we do. For whatever was written in earlier times was, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Everything that was written prior, all the testimonies, everything in God's word is written to give us instruction, how we need to live our lives. So we see how David cried out to God and said, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. David was living for the glory of God. The Messiah lived for the glory of God. How do we live? We live for the glory of God. That is what the scriptures has instructed us to do. And I I go back to verse one, Scott, where it talks about we ought to bear the weakness of those. I mean, you think about Christ coming and, and his disciples and all the kind of, you know, what we might call stupid questions they had to ask. And and Christ never condemned them for asking those. He tried. Uh, Alan, growing up, we never allowed our kids to use that word, but it's okay here. <laughs> What's <All> better, dumb? <laughs> Ignorant. Ignorant questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they had a lot of, of those for him, and he never, you know, he never once judged them for that. He tried to explain the best he could, but he knew that they didn't have that understanding that they hadn't received, you know, that new heart and that new mind yet. It's not just tolerate. You know, sometimes we can tolerate things, and it's still— you know, we talked about this on the last podcast in chapter 14, how, you know, not letting that resentment build up in your heart for someone who's a little weak, weaker in the faith or struggling with something that just might be clear as day to you. But in the same way that Jesus came and, and dealt with the disciples in a loving way, even with the questions that, you know, he knew, and it was just really kind of a nonsense question to him, a lot of those, he still took the time to explain it show it to them, knowing that they would come to the knowledge once they receive the new heart and the new mind. And I definitely think it takes like a a whole lot of humility to be able to do the self-denial necessary and the, the patience necessary to, to bear with somebody 
because I know if you are someone of strong faith and you encounter someone that has weaker faith and you realize that sometimes that can build up some resentment in you that, you know, you're somehow spiritually more mature than someone. And so you, you know, kind of have a disdain for this person is like, why are they failing? Like, why, why don't they understand, you know, the deeper meaning to this, this action? It's not a, a sin. Why, why do they feel like it is? And instead of coming humbly and, and just saying, no, I need to have patience and bear with this person because it's not about me. And if it was, then you can develop that disdain. But if you come back to realizing it's just not about me, nothing is about me. Yes, and I, I think Alan has a great point on the aspect of look at Jesus's relationship with his disciples. Think about how much they did not understand. How he constantly says to, the, to them, you still don't understand what I'm talking about here. Yet everything he's doing is for them, and he is having patience with them, and he's bringing them through a process of building them up and preparing them for the future. And a lot that they, that Jesus taught them, they're not really going to come to a full understanding until after the circumcised heart, the Spirit of God within them. And then everything that they were taught for the, the amount of time that Jesus was with them just started to come alive. And they understood why he had to go to the cross. They probably understood the parables in such a uh, more powerful way than they did at that time. And then their character. You see that their character through a life in the Spirit and everything that Jesus taught them is bringing them to the point they're willing to lay down their lives to take this gospel to the world. So, yes, Samuel, it does take humility. It takes a lot of patience. It's, it takes not focused upon ourselves, but always focused upon the Lord and focused upon others. That's what Jesus did. It was always the will of the Father, and it was always about building up these disciples because they were the ones that were going to go to the ends of the earth with the good news. And they were going to become the foundation of what we know of as the church. So yes, a lot of humility, and it's about dying daily, dying to ourselves every day. Life is not about me. Life is about the Lord. Yeah, and look, as we go into to verse 5, it's exactly kind of what we've been talking about. It says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, grants you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So we need to persevere through, you know, what our weaker brother is going through, and we also need to encourage them. And it's the same way that that God does to us when we're going through something or going through a challenge. You know, he's helping us to persevere. He's helping us um, by encouraging us, and we just need to have that same mindset as we you know, walking with a, a brother that's weaker, a sister that's weaker, that's struggling with something that, that we don't think should be even struggled with. But that's that encouragement and perseverance. Yes, and the role model is Christ Jesus. And so that's the mindset that we have to have every day, deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will give us perseverance. He's the one who gives perseverance and encouragement as we are walking this life that God has given to us. And what a beautiful life it is not to live for yourself, 
living for God and living to encourage and build up others in the faith. Verse 6, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is unity when everybody has the right perspective. There is disunity when we're trying to put ourselves first. And that is in everything that we do in life. And so the body of Christ is not like the world. The world is always trying to get individually ahead of another person. But the life of Christ is all about saying, God, it's about you. It's about others. And we should all be in one accord. We should all have the same mind, same voice, glorifying God and our Father and glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's unity. You know, we're one family. There's one baptism. There's one spirit. There is one Lord. There is one salvation. We should be in one accord, and there should be one voice. All of that is possible as we do not put ourselves first. Yeah, like you said, I think about when I was— a little younger, I played soccer, and you're on a team. The only way you can really win a game is if you play together. If you try to just play on your own, you will not have a lot of success. And like when we think about putting others first, it's not that you're diminishing yourself. It's that if they succeed, I succeed. If I can put someone else first and build up the body of Christ, it builds me up too. And so I don't have to worry about myself and my needs and what you know, I'm trying to get out of out of Christianity, but if I can constantly put Christ first and if I can if I can build the body up, then that, yes. that builds me up. Yes. And we are a team, a family. And so if one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one hurts, we all hurt. We're should we should be all moving together. That is possible as we put the Lord first in everything that we do. Verse 7, therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So we're not talking about accepting people in their sin, people that are living in rebellion against God and, and in their sin. So you've got to understand the context here. It's the context about things that we eat, things that we drink, about what day is more important than the other day. This is the context in which, in which we are talking about. So we accept one another. There is a more mature brother and there is a weaker brother in the faith. The more mature brother is patient and walking in humility, not putting himself first, but trying to bring that weaker brother in the faith along and allowing them time to stand stronger. And again, this is in the non-essential things of our faith. And not in any way is Paul saying, okay, Samuel, you're living in sin, but I'm not going to criticize that. Alan, you're doing this over here that's dishonoring God. I'm not to say anything about that. That is not the context of chapters 14 and 15. It is in the non-essential things of our faith. We need to accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So think about Jesus and his disciples. He did not just throw them away when they made mistakes and they were not thinking in the same way. Sometimes he rebuked them. Sometimes he had to nurture them more. 
but it was all about building them up and making them stronger in the faith because he was going to go to the cross and they were going to be the ones that was going to take the good news to the world. And so in the same way, he accepted them with all of their weaknesses, all of their misunderstandings, all of the things that they did not understand at that time. And sometimes Jesus was very strong with them. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because what Peter was saying, I'm not going to allow you to go to Jerusalem and to be crucified and to put you in harm's way. That was something that Peter felt very strongly. You're my Lord. You're my master. I'm not going to let you do that. But Jesus understood that was the will of the Father. And he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So sometimes there's a rebuke. Yet at the, in the whole context, everything that he is doing is to bring these disciples to more maturity in their understanding and their faith. Verse 8, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And verse 9 goes along with verse 8. 1 and verse 8 is to the Jewish people. Verse 9, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. So I believe what Paul is saying, both to the Jews and the Gentiles, Christ was a servant. Everything that he did was to serve them. In fact, he is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. And so both for the Jews and the Gentiles, he came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. So verse 8 is about the Jews, verse 9 about the nations or the Gentiles. Let's read. Verse 9 goes on to say, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles or the nations. Now one thing I want to point out, when you see the word nations, peoples, plural, Gentiles, those are all synonyms. And so here he is saying, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. That is a song of David in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Now we're going to come to a song of Moses. Rejoice, again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples praise him. That is from Psalm 117. So early, earlier, we're quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32 from the Song of Moses, and then we go into Psalm chapter 17, but it's all about the Gentiles, the peoples, the nations praising God. Then he's going to come in verse 12 to Isaiah. And again, again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the nations, the Gentiles, in him, the nations, the Gentiles, hope. And that's from the, the famous chapter of Isaiah chapter 11 about the branch, the root of Jesse that will come, that will bring peace to the earth, and the nations will glorify God through this root of Jesse. So verse 8 is about to the Jews. Let me read it. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, to the Jewish people, on behalf of the truth of God, to confirm 
the promises given to the fathers. And then verse 9, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, the mercy that has been extended through Israel to the nations through the Messiah. Yeah, and I, I like how that flows into this, you know, passages about glorifying glorifying God because the way I'm reading it now, looking at it, is that, you know, us serving one another, bearing on another person's weakness, a weaker believer, again, in the non-essential items, is unity, and that unity glorifies God. And you think about, you know, people on the outside that, that aren't saved, that don't know Jesus, when they see us in unity and they see us taking care of a weaker brother or sister, how much more powerful is that than what the world usually does where they just want to cut off that weaker person or they want to argue with them or tell them they're wrong and say, don't come back to me until you, you know, get your act together or whatever the case may be. Our unity um, is a strong testimony to to everyone. And I think of, you know, it's sad how we've, you know, gotten into some denominations and just got where people won't talk to each other. And you see it in churches, you know, someone's, won't speak to someone else because they voted against the the youth rec center. Um, and then all of a sudden they just don't even talk. And, and what kind of testimony is that to the world? Right. And if, if we're not doing that, we're not glorifying God, which is the ultimate, you know, goal of his church. It was the goal of Israel, you know, to glorify the name of God and of Jesus throughout the earth. Right. And think about this. Jesus is the example as the servant He was the servant to the Jewish people. He was the servant to the Gentiles. He is the one that sets the example for us as a more mature believer to a weaker brother and how we need to respond to them. And sometimes we're the weaker in the situation. And somebody that is more mature in the faith has patience with us and really doesn't put their own interests before helping us, and they have patience and humility, and they really walk in God's Spirit, and they bring us closer to the Lord, and they work with us over time in these things that maybe we don't understand right now. And a lot of Jesus's disciples, again, I'll say it again, did not understand a lot of what he was teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God until much later. But they were his disciples, but maturity had not yet come. Yeah, I also think it's cool how Paul really focuses on affirming that the gospel is for the Gentiles in, in this passage right here, especially because he's talking about these non-essential things and how you have Jewish culture coming to faith and you have Gentiles from all different cultures coming to faith. And there's probably a lot of different you know, backgrounds that they're yes. coming from where Some things may be sinful in a certain context to certain Gentiles from a different culture, different from the the Jewish culture, and how he's kind of saying, now that we're all coming together, all these different cultures are mixing, everyone has different beliefs on what's essential, what's non-essential, but what is uh, the thing that you're tasked with? Be like Christ, be unified, have patience in those things. Yes, and one of the things back in chapter 14 that illustrates what you're talking about is about one day regards, one individual regards one day as more important than another. And that could be talking about the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And another says that every day is important. And so they don't have this same background of the law of Moses. The Gentiles do not have that. And so you have Jews and Gentiles together. What is essential is 
following the Lord Jesus Christ and not putting yourself at the forefront. That is what is essential. If that is essential, then these other things you can recognize they're not that important. And I can put the other person first. Yeah, and I think just to put this kind of in a, a modern day context, um, you know, we're getting more and more towards globalization, you know, as a as as the world progresses with technology and you know, I'm interacting now with people that are in Israel, that are in India that are in these different cultures who may who may not see things exactly the same way that I do, who may have different, you know, traditions that things are wrong, where in my mind it's not wrong. Um, and I think that we just need to be careful as we get towards that, not to push these non-essentials onto others or to judge them by that and to say, you know, let's have empathy for their culture. How do they view things? What is what is something that they do that I shouldn't do that's may that's okay for me to do, but it's going to offend them? And trying to put them first because, yeah, I think now we can really be in touch with believers from all over the world and gather and fellowship with them. And that's an amazing thing, but we don't want to have these non-essential sort of cultural differences not have us in fellowship or have us resenting someone because we disagree with something they believe is a culture. Yes, and we can talk all night about some of these things. And the more you talk about it, you really come to the understanding that so much of these things in one culture that is important, not important in another culture, when you really analyze it, you can see that it's okay to be flexible in these areas, and they're not essential to our faith. Now, let's continue in verse 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of like an ending, a conclusion to what he has been saying here. And uh, it's almost like a benediction, because he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That kind of brings us to a different flow of thought that is happening after this. He's bringing that to an end, and now he's coming to an, another focus of what he wants to speak to the believers at Rome. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and are able also to admonish one another. So he did bring it to a to an end, but now he's continuing in a in the same mindset, but coming to a different subject. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he is flowing to a different topic here. The topic is about his ministry and God's calling on his life to the Gentiles. Now, most of the believers now in the city of Rome, we believe, are from a Gentile background. He has never been to Rome. But he's writing to Gentile believers, and he, he is expressing what God has done in his life and his calling, and that calling is to the Gentiles. And he understands his ministry as a priest. And I want to look at the context here, because 
all through the new covenant, we understand there's not an earthly priesthood, that Jesus is our heavenly high priest, and there is the priesthood of all believers. And what that means is that we don't go through an earthly priesthood. Paul is not saying that he is a priest in the in the sense of serving in a temple or as a mediator, but look at the context here. Ministering as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable. He's just using a figure of speech of saying, my ministry to the Gentiles, I give the Gentiles to the Lord. It's an offering to the Lord. Not that he's a earthly mediator that the Gentiles have to come through, but he is one that is offering these Gentiles as an offering to the Lord, acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So some have used this one verse to say that we can have priests. Today, there are not any priests in this context. You and I never have to go through an earthly priesthood to God. We go through the Lord Jesus Christ, our heavenly high priest, and we are a priesthood unto ourselves. And that means that we go straight to God through Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think about the... The verse, I'm not exactly sure that what it says, but where it talks about my life as an offering, you know, to the Lord. And I think we can we can have our job as an offering where we say, Lord, I'm going to offer this to you, um, you know, and give it to you in the best way that we can. And that's kind of how I see Paul using that in this um, this context. I, yes, and I would see a connection to um, chapter 12 of offering of ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. Here, he's offering these Gentiles that have come to faith through the power of God's Holy Spirit, but as a priest, I'm offering this unto the Lord. My ministry is to the Gentiles. It's all for God's glory, and I'm placing them on the altar of God. And so let's flow to verse 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Verse 18 says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So what is he going to boast in? What God has done through his life as an apostle to the Gentiles, he is serving as a priest in this context of offering them unto the Lord. And if he's going to boast, he's going to boast in what God has done. And he sees God's hand upon his life and what God is doing. And he's going to talk about this some more. He's going to say in verse 19, in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as, as far as Ilirikum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. He's talking about how far God has taken him with this ministry to the Gentiles. Verse 20 is extremely important in understanding God's calling upon Paul's life and what it means to be an apostle. And this verse I constantly go back to in order to understand what does it mean to have apostolic ministry. There are many people today that call themselves apostles. However, when you look at verse 20, this really defines apostolic ministry. There are the 12 apostles that we see within the New Covenant Scriptures, but outside of the 12, we also see apostolic ministry that continues beyond the 12. 
How would you define what is apostolic ministry? It is foundational ministry, and Paul understood this. And this ministry went all the way from Jerusalem all the way to Ili Rikum, and everywhere he went, it was all foundational ministry. Cities, towns, regions, districts that had never had the gospel. And so verse 20 is going to explain this, what it means to have apostolic ministry. He says, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build upon another man's foundation. That's the reason why Paul had not been to Rome to this point. There had already been the foundation of the gospel that had been planted in Rome. It is not his desire to go to Rome and stay there. He wants to go there to have some spiritual fruit among them, to impart spiritual giftings upon them. It is not his mindset that I want to go and stay in Rome. There is already a great community of faith that has been established in the city of Rome. So his calling is to the Gentiles. Apostolic ministry is foundational level. If you're in the city of Birmingham, Alabama, how can you call yourself an apostle? Because you're dealing on every other street, a different church that exists. This was not Paul's mindset. He is going to places everywhere he goes where there is not the foundation. The foundation has never been laid within those places. I want to read this verse again. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. He's on his way to where? Spain. But he wants to come through Rome to have some ministry among them, but not to stay there. Now, the reality is going to be he's going to have to stay there two years once he arrives because he's going to be under house arrest. But his desire is to go to the region called Spain. Verse 21, But as it is written, They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. That is the heart of missions. That's the heart of a missionary. That is the heart of apostolic ministry, to go where no one has ever been, to lay the foundation of the gospel, to see God use that individual through signs and wonders and miracles to bring the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to people that have never had it. That was the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Verse 22. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. Which reason? Because of his calling. That's what he's saying. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, Not to come and take residency there in Rome, but to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Again, apostolic ministry is not to go to Rome because there's already a foundation in Rome, but Spain has not received that foundation. So fellowship, ministry, possibly financial support from them to help him on his way 
to Spain. Verse 25, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. He had taken up an offering, and he's on his way to Jerusalem to help the believers in the city of Jerusalem. For Macedonia, talking about Philippi, and Achaia, Corinth, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem, and he's going to be there in order to bring an offering, and he has accountability with this offering. Others are going with him to bring this offering to the believers in Jerusalem that was given by the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, primarily probably the cities of Philippi and Corinth. Gentile believers taking up offerings because of the famine that has come to Jerusalem and Judea and the persecution of the Jewish believers back in the land. Here are Gentile believers ministering through Paul to their physical needs back in the land. Verse 27 says, yes, they were pleased to do so. That's the believers back in these regions to take up this offering, and they are indebted to them. You see, it was the, Gentile, it was the Jewish believers that brought the gospel to the Gentiles. There is an indebtedness that they have spiritually back to the believers in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, They are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And what is the context? They're suffering. The believers in Jerusalem are under heavy persecution. In fact, after the murder of Stephen, most of them lost everything. And the church had to go underground within that city. And many of them were scattered to Judea and Samaria. So, of course, in that context, here are people that brought the gospel to us, and they're suffering, and they have needs physically within their lives. Yes, we're indebted to minister back to them physically. Verse 28, Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by my way of you to Spain. Now, that's going to take place, but remember, He's going to go to Jerusalem. There's going to be an uproar within the city. People are going to try to kill him. They're going to have to escort him, the Romans, to a city called Caesarea. He is going to be in jail for two years in Caesarea. Then he is going to be sent by ship to Rome. He's going to be shipwrecked and spend a winter at Malta. After that winter, he is going to go by ship to the mainland, and then he's going to arrive in Rome. And when he gets in Rome, he's going to have to spend two years under house arrest. So Paul doesn't know all of this. He's not God. He doesn't have this understanding that it's going to take him three to four years to get there and all of the time that he's going to spend in jail and under house arrest. But he believes, I will go on my way I will go on by way of you to Spain, and that's exactly what took place. He just didn't understand all the details, how long it was going to take. Verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Christ is in this. I feel this witness that this is the direction that God is sending me in Christ Jesus. Now let's close out this chapter. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me 
in your prayers to God for me. He is saying to them, please commit to praying for me. He knows what is before him and the challenges that are before him. And he's asking the believers in Rome to pray for him. Verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Now, to me, that verse is really interesting because he doesn't know all the details, but he senses that there's going to be conflict when he gets into Jerusalem. He also wants to see this offering that he took up in Macedonia and Achaia, which did cause him some problems. He came under attack for even taking up this offering, but he wants both for the givers and those that are receiving the offering that it comes together and it become acceptable to the holy ones, the saints. So he wants to complete this. This is something that God put on the believers, on the hearts of the believers in Corinth. Paul was in favor of this. He came under conflict of taking up this offering. He knows the physical needs that are there. So as he takes this offering and delivers it to the Jewish believers in in Jerusalem, it will be something he's hoping and praying for that will prove acceptable to the body of Christ. Verse 32, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And last thought from me on this is I, I you know, Paul didn't obviously know what's going to happen. Um, so I guess it's sort of an indirect context. We look at this that, you know, he really got, um, you know, thrown for a loop with this travel. You know, he was in Jerusalem. He had those people trying to kill him. He's gone shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And modern day, we might see someone like that and say, wow, they really missed the will of God. You know, they Scott didn't know what he was doing. Why is he over there in this prison in Iran when he, you know, was planning to go, um, yeah, wherever you were going to go. But, you know, that's just, I think that's an important point that Paul, you know, he had these plans laid and he was a man of God. He was hearing from, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, he was following what God wanted to do, but it didn't work out exactly how he thought it was going to and how. Especially from the details. Yeah. Because he does end up going to Spain later on through, um, through Rome he senses that there could be conflict in Jerusalem, but it's important for him to take this offering and may it be acceptable to the saints. May it be something that's a blessing to the giver and the receiver and it builds the body of Christ. He knows he's going in the right direction, but he doesn't have any idea he's going to spend two years in jail in Caesarea. Yeah, and I think, you know, for us as believers, sometimes that can, you know, for following God's will and something does arise that's not how we plan. It can be discouraging, and we can say, wow, did I miss that? Did I not hear from God? And on the outside, we can see someone that's going through something and say, wow, you know, Sam really didn't hear from God on that one. Look at where he's at. But that's not always the case, and I think we need to be careful of that when we're, A, looking at other people and also looking at ourselves and what we thought God has called us or wanted us to do. If it doesn't exactly work how we had it planned, you know, that doesn't always mean we didn't hear from God. That just means God had a different plan that he chose. Um, and, and you look at what happened through that, all this with Paul, especially on the island of Malta, you know, the entire island was saved because of that shipwreck. And it's something where we say, wow, he shipwrecked, this boat crashed, he's, 
you know, in prison, he's definitely out of the will of God is what you want to say in the natural. But that's exactly where he's supposed to be. Yes, I'm going to say one more thing, and then I'm going to let Samuel close this out. This verse 32 is very significant to me, because look at what he is saying. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Remember when he goes to Caesarea, they actually make the decision, if he had not appealed to Caesar, we could let him go. When you look at Felix and Festus and King Agrippa II, they they are saying there's not any reason to hold this man. But Paul knew he was to go to Rome. So as a Roman citizen, he has appealed to Caesar, and he has the legal right to go to Rome and stand trial before Caesar. So he has every intention to go there, didn't know all the details, But this conviction that he was to go to Spain through Rome, that was probably at the forefront of why he appealed to Caesar. Now, if you look at it, this is where he's going. He has a conviction. I'm going to Rome on my way to Spain. That's exactly what took place historically. Didn't know he was going to spend all that time in prison. Didn't know he was going to be shipwrecked. But look at what happened at Malta. All these people that came to faith. Whatever is happening in our lives, what is important, I don't have to understand what's going on and why. I just need to be faithful to God and the call of God upon my life. He never lost focus of God's calling and what God was saying to him. And one of the things he was saying is you're going to go through Rome on your way to Spain. And when he gets out of house arrest, according to church history, He goes all the way to Spain and takes the gospel to the region known as Spain. Okay, I guess we can close in prayer now. Okay, Dear God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you so much for revealing it to us through your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you will transform us in our heart and in our mind, God, to realize that this is not about us, that the focus of our life should not be about serving our needs and our desires, Jesus but living like Christ and serving others and putting God first above everything else. Jesus, that no matter what happens in our life, no matter how bad it gets, I hope, God, that you can help us to realize that it's about you, it's about the call that you've placed in our life, and about obedience to your word, Jesus. I pray that you would help to instill that in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.